All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 14, verses 43 through 52. That is Mark 14, 43 through 52. Uh, we're continuing our study of Mark's Gospel. Uh, this morning we come to Mark's account of the betrayal and arrest of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we considered the agony of soul that our Lord endured on our behalf as he prepared himself for the cross. Um, we, we saw that uh, he suffered in his heart as he contemplated the cup of God's wrath that he would soon drink for us. We saw his fear of God. We saw his true humanity. And we also saw how he perfectly and sincerely submitted his human will to the will of God for us and for our salvation. And in our text this morning, the next phase of his suffering, of his passion, begins. As we read this morning, we will bear witness to his betrayal. Our Lord will receive the kiss of death from Judas Iscariot. He will be arrested and manhandled by wicked men. He will be treated as a common criminal. And he will be abandoned by all once this has occurred. He will be left utterly alone as he does the work of our redemption. In this text, our Lord seems powerless and helpless as he is treated as a guilty man. But as I hope to show you this morning, throughout this whole event, our Lord's character and his power are both on display for those with eyes to see it. For those who have eyes to see, we will see the innocence of Christ and we will see his sovereignty and we will see his humility. And we will see him abandoned by all as the man of sorrows. In seeing these things this morning, may God grant us hearts that love the Lord Jesus with a greater love. That's what I'm after this morning in preaching this text to you. Through the preaching of, of his word this morning, may God grant that we would all leave here loving Christ more than when we first came in. May God help us. I, I hope to help you see this morning. I hope to help you to see Jesus for who he is. This is often what I'm after. This is, this is preaching. I want people to see who Christ is. So may God help us all to see him with the eye of faith. Now, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 52. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of God. Let's pray. 
Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with a desire to see Christ in your word. Oh God, we need help to worship you and listening and, and to, to the preaching of the word of God and preaching the word of God is worship, but we are so weak and we need your help if we're to worship you properly. Help us to see Christ. We know that that's why you've given us your word so that we would behold your glory in the face of our Lord Jesus. And so, God, we ask now that you would act according to your promises and enlighten our minds to savingly understand and believe the word of God this morning. By your Spirit, work in our hearts that we might behold the Son of God and his suffering for us. Grant that we would see him, and seeing that we would be changed to love him more and serve him more fervently. Glorify yourself in us through the preaching of your word this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So here in our text, it's the night of Passover still. It's late, probably after midnight. We're now into the wee hours of the morning, and it's quiet, as it always is early in the morning. Jesus and his disciples are in the Garden of Gethsemane. Our Lord has been praying for the last few hours. In his humanity, he's been wrestling with the will of God and submitting himself to it in love and reverence for God. And then finally, our Lord comes to his disciples and says in verses 41 and 42, It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Our Lord is resolved to go to the cross. He doesn't run away. He has submitted himself to the will of God. He is set to fulfill the scriptures and work salvation for his people by his blood. And now the betrayer comes for him. The betrayer comes and he is ready. Jesus is ready for all that will come upon him. As Jesus says, he is now betrayed into the hands of sinners. He had prophesied that it would happen. Judas had secretly planned with the religious rulers to betray Christ. And now it is coming to pass, just as our Lord had said it would. All things are occurring according to God's timetable in the life of our Lord. Mark tells us that, I'm just going to summarize this. Mark tells us that Judas comes leading a crowd of men to arrest Jesus. They come out, as Jesus said, as against a robber. They come out against Christ armed with swords and clubs as if Jesus was some kind of a violent criminal. The word robber there may be better translated insurrectionist. A violent man who's been trying to lead revolution. A man who's known for violence. And apparently from what the Gospel of John tells us, this crowd was a mixed group of Jewish temple guards and Roman soldiers. Some of the language he uses for the crowd there very well may mean that they were Romans. Truly, in light of this, that it's, it's Jews and Gentiles, truly what the psalmist said is true. The nations raged and peoples plotted against Christ. The kings and rulers of the earth took counsel together against God and against his Christ. And they're there together armed. They're expecting resistance. They're expecting a fight from Christ and his disciples. Again, they're treating Jesus as if he were some kind of a violent man. And Judas, before they get there, he gives them a signal. He says in verse 44, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. How terrible is the hypocrisy and betrayal of Judas. He will use a kiss 
to betray the Lord of glory. A kiss. What is usually a sign of closeness and friendship and respect and joy of seeing a loved one is now used as the signal to arrest Jesus and take him away to a Roman cross. Truly, this is worth mentioning always, truly Judas deserves everything he is currently getting in hell. A wicked man, a greedy man betrayed the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver for $7,500. He betrays the Lord Jesus. And Mark tells us that Judas, uh, uh, that, that Judas approached Jesus and says, Rabbi, what a liar. What a liar Judas is. He calls Jesus Rabbi, that's teacher, master. You'll notice that Judas never calls him Lord. Not one time in any of the Gospels does he ever call him Lord. But Jesus wasn't really his rabbi. Judas was never really taught by him. Jesus taught, but Judas did not listen. He never received anything that Jesus said. He never received it with faith. He never truly considered Jesus to be his master. He says, Rabbi, and Judas kisses him. And the Greek here means to kiss fervently. Judas kisses him on the cheek passionately, possibly with many kisses. He took his time as he kissed our Lord's face. And he did this because it's dark, right? He wants the crowd that's there to see the signal. They want to see, he wants them to see this is the one that that I want you to arrest. He took his time showering Christ with false affection and hypocritical love and mockery, if you think about it. Rabbi, the one I'm about to sell out. Mockery, Jesus's mockery begins here. And Judas betrays him. And then as they begin to seize Jesus, a scuffle ensues. One of his disciples cuts off the ear of one of the men trying to arrest him. But as soon as the fight begins to break out, it's over. Mark doesn't comment much else. But apparently, I I think we're safe to say in light of what the other Gospels teach us, Jesus stops the fight from escalating. The Gospel of John, uh, chapter 18, verse 11, tells us that it was Peter who cut the ear off of the man. And the man was called Malchus. And he was a servant of the high priest. Luke alone in Luke twenty two fifty one 51 records, consider the grace of Christ here. How mercifully and miraculously Jesus reattached the ear of Malchus, the man who was arresting him. Matthew then records in Matthew 26 that Jesus rebuked Peter for this outburst of violence, for cutting off the man's ear. And Jesus said, put your sword back into its place. In Luke, he says, enough of this. He says, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Mark then tells us that Jesus rebukes the crowd of soldiers and guards for their cowardice. He affirms that he is no criminal. He affirms his innocence of any wrongdoing. And then he says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. He recognizes that this is the will of God for him, and he submits to the mistreatment and injustice of wicked men. And then Mark very simply says in verse 50, everyone left him. Everyone left him. The disciples all flee, just as he had prophesied earlier that evening that they would. 
Even a stranger who followed briefly to see what would become of him runs away naked rather than be caught and associated with Jesus Christ and his sufferings. And with that, our text ends. And there are four things that I want to draw out to you for you this morning from all of this. First, let's consider the innocence of Christ. Though he was being arrested and would soon be charged falsely, but would be charged with blasphemy, our Lord was innocent of any wrongdoing whatsoever. And the actions of both Christ and those involved in his arrest demonstrate this for anyone paying attention. They all knew he was innocent. They all knew he was the perfect man. They all knew that he had done no wrong and did not deserve death. But they arrested him anyway. Real quick, this is not a point that I'm going to, to dwell on. As you behold the innocence of Christ, behold the wickedness of men. They arrest an innocent man. They arrest a man who displays divine power to heal. Malchus, the man who was trying to arrest him after Peter cuts his ear off, and, and they arrest him anyway. As you behold the innocence of Christ here, consider the wickedness of men to arrest him anyway. See the depravity of man, that man truly is a hater of God apart from divine grace. But consider with me that Judas had no charge to bring against Jesus. Have you ever, have you ever considered this? He had no charge to bring against him. He sold him out for money, not for any wrong in Jesus. You know, if you read the texts where Judas goes to the chief priests and Pharisees to agree to betray Jesus, if you go and read those, you'll notice that Judas never offers to give testimony against Christ. Now, we know that the religious rulers were looking for people to give legal testimony against Jesus for some kind of capital offense, but Judas never offers to give testimony. Never offers. Why? Because there was no testimony to give. There was nothing that Judas could say against Jesus. There was nothing to testify, period. And even as we're going to see next week in Christ's trial, the people who did testify against Jesus, their stories didn't match up because they were liars. There was nothing to testify against him. Jesus had never done anything wrong, and Judas knew it. Judas had lived with and literally followed Jesus around for three years or more. He was one of the twelve. He was part of the inner circle of disciples. He had witnessed firsthand Jesus' spotless life. He knew that there was no hypocrisy in Jesus. I promise if you follow me around for a week, you would see, ah, this man does not practice everything that he preaches. I'm working on it, so pray for me. But you would not see that in Christ. Judas never saw that in Christ. He knew Jesus had never wronged anyone. That he, he was not a political revolutionary. He had heard Jesus preach time and time again. And he had seen that his conduct and private and public life was spotless like that of a lamb without blemish. Judas knew Jesus had no sin. He knew he was innocent. And this is further evidence than the fact, sometimes we forget this when we consider Judas. Judas openly admits later that he regrets betraying Jesus. In Matthew 27, verses 3 and 4, we read, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. 
Judas knew his innocence. Consider also that this whole event happens at night. It's not on accident. It happens at night. Why at night? Because nighttime is secretive. And it's a time for the wicked to do their work. They wanted to do this under the cover of night so as not to be seen for what they were doing. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders all knew that they didn't have a legitimate case against Jesus. They knew that they didn't have anything to charge him with. Later in Mark, we'll read how they were, again, as I said earlier, they were seeking testimony against him, but found none. They knew that they had nothing on him, only false witnesses that couldn't keep their story straight. And they knew that Jesus had a clean and pure reputation in the sight of all men. And so arresting him publicly in the daytime would have provoked a riot. So what do they do? They bind him in chains in the nighttime and take him away with a guard before judges so that when the day comes, he looks guilty. A man in chains always looks guilty to the masses, do they not? No one looks good in a mugshot. Everyone looks guilty in a mugshot. They arrest him at night so when the people wake up, they see him in chains and assume his guilt and don't riot. That's why they do this at night, because they know He's innocent, but they must make him look guilty. Our Lord even affirms his own innocence in this passage. In verses 48 and 49, he confronts the cowardice and deviousness of the crowd. He says, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. I don't know if you, if you catch this or not. Our Lord is calling them out for what they're doing. That's what's going on here. And in doing so, he is affirming implicitly that he hasn't done anything deserving arrest. Let me, let me spell this out for you a bit. Here's the logic of our Lord's words as far as I can tell. Why did they come out armed as if Jesus was a robber? That is a violent criminal. He had no reputation for crime or violence or resistance against the government. He had never advocated for any of those things or done them. So why do they need this kind of entourage to arrest him? Furthermore, if Jesus is some kind of criminal, why didn't they arrest him publicly when he was teaching in the temple constantly for the last week? If he was guilty of some kind of offense against God or men, why did they wait so long to arrest him? He was right there. If he was guilty of blasphemy, he was blaspheming in the temple where the guards were present. Why didn't they arrest him there? Again, they, they knew where to find him and he didn't hide. So why now are they doing this? Well, because it's night and they can hide their wickedness. They knew that Jesus hadn't done anything wrong and he's pointing it out to them. He knew that they knew. This reminds us of what our Lord said in John 10.32. It's a verse that always makes me chuckle a little bit because I think Jesus maybe has a bit of a sense of humor here. He says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? I've done many good things. Which one of them are you going to kill me for? Jesus only ever did good works. He only ever, can you say this? I can't say this. He only ever pointed people to the true love and worship of God. He had no bad works, let alone criminal behavior that was worthy of an arrest. Brothers and sisters, I declare to you by way of reminder that our Lord is sinless and perfectly innocent in every way. 
Let's consider what the word of God has to say about him in his purity. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 John 3.5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. John 8.29, Jesus said, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He always pleases God. And as Peter calls him in 1 Peter 1.19, a lamb without blemish or spot. Our Lord is innocent. Please hear me. He is more innocent than the baby that you hold in your arms. Is that not, usually that's the pinnacle of innocence whenever we talk, is it not? It's usually in a qualified way if you have good theology. But we think of a child as being the most innocent thing in this world. But Jesus is more innocent. Jesus is truly innocent. I don't mean to burst anyone's bubble, but that child is corrupt. That child was born in Adam. That child has Adam's guilt and sin. That child has a sinful nature that will bear its fruit in time. But our Lord is utterly and totally without sin. The purest of the pure. The purest of the pure. If anyone did not deserve to be mistreated or accused, it is him. It is him. Hear me. And again, this is worthy of your meditation this Lord's Day. He had never wronged anyone in any way. He had never mistreated a single person throughout his entire life ever. Ever. He never lied. He never broke any commandment. He is the embodiment of the law. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. He perfectly stood before both God and men. Perfectly. Imagine being able to say that. I've only ever done good. Imagine that. I've never done anything wrong to anyone. I've never sinned against God. I've never done wrong, period. Never done what wrong? Anything, period. We could never say that. We are so full of corruption and sin. We deserve death and damnation from God, for as the apostle says, the wages of sin is death, but not him. He is the spotless lamb of God. And yet this night, he was being treated as a criminal. He will be charged with sin and blasphemy and all manner of wickedness this night. Though he had done no wrong, he will be numbered among the transgressors, as Isaiah said. I hope you can see that our Lord is indeed the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And brothers and sisters, please hear me. If he is to be of any benefit to us, he must be so. I'm not trying to say that we use Jesus, but we do benefit from him. And if we are to benefit from him at all, he must be perfect. If he is to represent us in covenant before God, he must be perfect, or we are just as damned in him as we are in Adam. 
If he is to make us righteous before God by giving us his righteousness through faith, he must be sinless or he has no righteousness to give. If he is to make atonement by offering himself as the sacrifice that puts away God's wrath, he must be a pure sacrifice or God will not be satisfied. If he is to be our redeemer, if he is to make the many to be accounted righteous through faith in him, he must be the perfect man. And praise be to God, everything we need him to be, he is. Everything we need him to be, he is. He is our perfect sinless redeemer who was counted guilty in our place. Praise God. We see his innocence in this text. Second, let's think about the sovereignty of Christ in this event. The sovereignty of Christ over his arrest. Throughout his earthly ministry, the religious rulers wanted to arrest him and kill him. They, they've, been, they've been plotting this for a while. They've wanted to get this done. At times, we read that the crowds picked up stones to stone him, like in John 10. Other times, they tried to hem him in and trap him. I believe it's Luke 4 we see that. They try to trap him so that they can arrest him and do him harm, possibly kill him. But they could never do it. It's something that uh, people, people talk about. Like it just says Jesus slipped away. They could never arrest him. Somehow he always got away. Jesus tells us that they could not take him or kill him because his time had not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Our Lord could not be arrested until he willed it. Let me say that again. He could not be arrested until he willed it. And that's what makes this time in Gethsemane different. It is now his will to be arrested, or he would not have been. He controlled this. He controlled all of this. Notice in verse 42, oh, you want to see the lion of the tribe of Judah? Rise, let us be going. Why? My betrayer is at hand. What majesty! Rise, get up, let's go. Why are we running? No. He's coming. The betrayer is coming and we're going to meet him. What majesty. What calm resignation to the will of God. What control. They don't have to find him. He went out to meet them so that they could arrest him. And consider that the crowd came with weapons and were expecting a fight to arrest him. But did he resist? Absolutely not. He did not resist at all. If I know you're coming to get me to take me to my death, I'm fighting. You'll probably have to kill me there. Not him. Not him. Only Peter acted violently by cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant. And he acted violently only very briefly before Jesus put an end to it. Jesus did not want there to be any fighting, so he stopped it. He never commanded them to stop the arrest from happening. In Luke's account, in Luke 22, um, I, I believe it's right before he's being seized or as he's being seized, they say, Lord, do you want us to break out the swords? That's my paraphrase. Do you want us, what, what, what do you want us to do? And he doesn't tell them to do anything. He doesn't tell them to do anything. He doesn't try to stop his arrest. More than that, Jesus stooped down to heal the ear of the man who was trying to arrest him. He 
healed the man who was trying. Instead of fleeing or resisting, he shows mercy and divine power to heal. Clearly, he was prepared and willing to be arrested. He, he, he was in control, and he knew he was in control. Also, if they seize him and then an ear gets cut off, what does that mean? They let him go as he healed him. They let him go because he wanted them to let him go so that he could heal Malchus. He's in control of this whole thing. And as I mentioned earlier, after the incident with Peter and Malchus, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. A legion is 6,000 men. 72,000 angels. If you know your Old Testament, you remember the time that one angel slaughtered, I think it was 135,000 men in one, e one evening. Jesus says, I, with one crying out to my Father, get 72,000 angels to come here right now. The force that he could have mustered to defend himself with just one request would have killed everyone in an instant. Jesus, by the way, see this here from Matthew's text. He is the Lord of hosts. That, that is, uh, as much as I don't like the New Living Translation, the God of angel armies, that's what Lord of hosts means. He says, I can call down the hosts if I want to, but I don't want to. I don't want to because how should the scriptures be fulfilled? He was not taken unwillingly. Another incident that night that I haven't mentioned yet is one that always leaves me nearly speechless to think on. In John 18, verses 5 through 6, we read that when the crowd first approached Jesus, he asked them, whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. I am. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. He uses the name of God there. The name of God. I am, from Exodus 3.14, to affirm who he is. And when he did, he knocked them to the ground. Did, did you hear that? He knocked them to the ground with his words. They fell down when he uttered his true identity. Truly, no man can stand in the presence of God in his power and majesty. If he could knock them down with a word, what else could he have done to them if he so willed? Jesus was arrested because he willed it. They could not have arrested the Son of God if he did not consent. Consider also that none of Jesus' disciples were arrested with him. You say, what does that have to do with his sovereignty? Hear me. Yes, they all fled and abandoned him. But that also means that none of them were caught. None of them were arrested with him. Not even Peter, who had just committed a crime in front of guards and soldiers. A violent crime. And yet they all get away. Now some people have looked at this and said, well, that's because they only wanted to arrest Jesus. But I don't think that's true in light of verse 51. With the young man who ran away naked, verse 51 says, and they seized him. They tried to arrest the young man with the linen cloth. That such a large crowd came out against Christ, Peter got criminally violent with one of the soldiers or guards, and yet only Jesus ends up arrested is a sovereign act of Christ. He controlled who would be arrested, that it would only be him. You can actually read in John 18 where he tells the soldiers, 
if you're here for me, leave them alone. By the way, who listens to the criminal they're arresting? He said what would be done, and it was done. Lastly, Jesus says something in this account that is really telling of his authority in the whole affair. And it's in Mark's gospel. I don't want you to think that I'm just pulling from other gospels. It's here in Mark, too. He says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Let them be fulfilled. Let it happen, says the sovereign Lord. Let it happen. And with that, he consents to arrest so that the will of God might be done and the scriptures be fulfilled. Brothers and sisters, throughout the entire event, our Lord displays power, majesty, and calm control. While these things are indeed happening to him, they are not happening apart from him. He was not taken unwillingly. He was not helpless. See this. He chose this. He desired to work redemption for his sheep, and so he chose this. And in light of his sovereignty over his arrest, we see the next point very clearly. The humility of Christ. Here is the great and baffling character of our Lord. This is what leaves us stunned. Of course, he's the son of God. We marvel at his sovereignty, but we're not surprised at it, are we? He's God. But in his humility, we're stunned. He had absolute, he has absolute power and absolute authority, and yet he humbles himself. That he could have done whatever he wanted and yet chose to be arrested by sinners is a humility that we cannot fully fathom. Oh, hear this. This is part of the mystery of the incarnation and the greatness of his humility in general in his incarnation. He let sinners touch him. In the Old Testament, you read that if someone touched the Ark of the Covenant, they die. Uzzah died instantaneously when he touched the Ark of the Covenant. But here the Son of God is incarnate and he lets sinners touch him. And not touch him in faith, but touch him in malice. The God who created the seraphim to cover their faces and feet because they cannot look upon the glory of God. The God who created the seraphim to cover themselves as they fly around the throne crying out, Holy, 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 here allows sinners to bind him and take him away. His humility is unparalleled. He let Judas breathe his air to falsely call him rabbi. Instead of peeling the lips from his face, Jesus allowed the betrayer to kiss him with mockery and hypocrisy. The one in whom we all live and move and have our being granted power to the men who seized him. He held their very beings together with the word of his power as they arrested, mocked, and mistreated him. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power did not dissolve the chains that bound him. The sovereign God of all the universe allowed their torches to burn in the night so they could see to walk him to his trial. What humility is this? How humble he must be to allow these things to happen to him. That the judge of all the earth, we'll see this next week, that the judge of all the earth would allow himself to be taken to trial by sinners shocks us to the core. And yet here stands our Lord, robed in regal power and servant-like humility, 
it is no blasphemy to say he is the humble God. He is the humble God. And a quick note here, we even see his humility. And I know I've mentioned it a few times, but it's because it shocks me. We see his humility and that he healed the ear of one of the men who had come to arrest him. He healed the ear of Malchus. How merciful is the Lord. He healed his enemy in the most literal way. And what a picture of the gospel that this is. He has mercy on his enemies. Even the worst of them. Oh, sinner, I don't care if you've been converted already or not. Sinner, hear this and marvel. He has mercy on those who come to him in faith. He is the humble and merciful Savior who delights to show mercy to sinners and save them. We see a picture of that in his humble healing of Malchus. Brothers and sisters, our Lord, again, I keep saying it. I want you to see it. He humbled himself in this moment in submission to the decree of God. Why? Because he desired to glorify God and save those whom the Father had given to him. And so it must be this way. It must be this way. He must do the work of redemption. And so he humbled himself in obedience and love. Hear once again the often quoted words of our Lord and marvel. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. At his arrest, it's as if the sacrificial lamb has bound himself with the chains of his enemies and placed himself upon the altar to be sacrificed. He did it. The lamb offered himself. The lamb handed himself over. The lamb humbled himself to death and willingly went to the slaughter for sinners. Christian, let us sing with the angels of heaven. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And again with the creation, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Praise him. There, is none, there are none like him. And lastly, we come now to see the abandoning of Christ. Let me read verses 50 and 52 again. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. They all ran. Everyone abandoned Jesus. The disciples left him. Even an unknown and unnamed man. Now many people have questions about this. Who is this man? I don't know and neither do you. And anyone who says they do is a liar. We don't know. God would have told us. God doesn't want us to know. He probably lived near the garden. These are guesses. He probably lived near the garden and was awakened by the commotion of the crowd. And so he wrapped himself in what was probably his bedclothes or a blanket and went to see what was happening. After Jesus was arrested, he tried to follow Jesus, most likely to see what was to become of him. But when the guards see him, they try to arrest him. They seize him, so they grab a hold of him. 
And what does he do? He runs with such abandon. He wants so much to get out of there and get away from Jesus and this crowd that he lets them have the cloth and he runs away naked. He ran away naked and full of shame rather than be numbered with Jesus. I think that's the big point of, of these verses. Why does Mark record this and no one else does? I think the big point here is nobody stood with Jesus. Nobody stood with him. Men would rather experience the height of shame and run away naked than be with Jesus. He was left alone. Our Lord was left alone to suffer at the hands of wicked men and suffer he would. But more than that, he was left all alone to suffer the wrath of God and justice of God at the cross. No one wanted to be associated with him. Nobody wanted to be numbered with him as he was numbered among the transgressors. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In the abandoning of Christ, see that he is the man of sorrows. No one wanted to be associated with him as he works the will of God. And as I've said before in another sermon, he is alone and he must be alone. He is the high priest about to make an atonement. As the high priest of the old covenant went into the holy of holies alone in order to sprinkle blood and make atonement for sinners, so the high priest of the new covenant must go alone to the cross in order to save sinners by shedding his blood at Calvary. And this is fitting if you think about it. The disciples are not to suffer with him that night because he goes forth to suffer for them. They could not suffer with him because he went to suffer for them. They cannot help him as he does this for them. See this. The Lord of glory left alone. Left alone as he worked redemption. See what the man of sorrows endured for you. Now what application are we to make from all of this? I think that we first need to realize that this isn't really about us. Yes, Hear me. Yes, there are examples here that we should imitate and we could flesh those out. There are other examples here that we should abominate and flesh those out as well. And sure, there are sub-themes here in this text that we could dig in for and they're legitimate and we could flesh those out and apply them to ourselves. But really, as far as I'm concerned, the betrayal and arrest of Christ is about his person and work. That's what it's about more than anything. As, as far as I'm concerned, at least in the manner that I've preached the text this morning, there is not anything that this text calls you to go out and do as a response. It's not that kind of passage. It's not that kind of text. Rather, it's the kind of text that tells you, see, look, behold. It calls us to see Christ with the eye of faith. So see this today. See the innocent Jesus counted guilty for you, the sinner. The innocent one was treated as a criminal for you and I who have broken the divine law. The innocent one was handed over to death so that the guilty would live in him. 
see the sovereign Christ humble himself for you, the unworthy worm. See that the sovereign humbled himself so that the unworthy would be raised up with him in glory. See the glorious Christ abandoned by all for you so that you might never be abandoned by God. See that the one who should be constantly surrounded by worshipers was abandoned so that sinners may be found. See him. See him and believe on him. Oh, oh sinner, believe on him. And believing, live for him. Live for him. Worship the innocent one made guilty for you. Submit your life to the one who submitted his life for yours. Humble yourself before the one who humbled himself for you. Be faithful to the one who was abandoned for you. How could we not? How could we not? Such things are only fitting for those with eyes who have seen him. This Jesus is the savior of all who will believe. Christian, he is your savior. He is yours. He did this for you. Praise his holy name from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Our holy God, we thank you. We thank you for giving us eyes to see Christ. We thank you for Christ, the innocent, sovereign, humble God. Lord, I, I confess that I don't know what to say except thank you for giving us such a Savior. And I pray that everyone in here, by your grace, would love the Savior more. And that if any here have not embraced the Savior in faith, that you would grant them faith in the one who lived, died, and was raised, that sinners might be brought to God. Increase our love. And help us to be faithful to the one who did so much for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.